Hey, Risto here with George Mason University. Today we're talking with Dr. David Dom, an assistant professor at San Jose State University in California. Um, we're going to be discussing his recent paper titled Toward Quality Online Physical Education, Research Questions and Future Directions. Um, you can find the full site of the article in the notes section and we'll link to that as well. Um, David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Risto. Thank you for having me. Um, it's a pleasure to discuss this article with you. I'd first like to thank and acknowledge the hard work of my co-authors, Tyler Goad, Brian Mosier, and Chad Killian. I just want to say that this paper came about after a conversation that Brian and I had at the 2018 PEEP conference in Salt Lake City. And uh, that conversation was really about you know, how research related to online physical education really needed to move beyond kind of the research that we had done, just finding out about <laughs> what 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 is online physical education mm -hmm. in the K twelve area, and we really hope that this manuscript is is a step in that direction. Yeah, and rest in peace, Salt Lake City Pete Heat Conference. That's a, that's a yeah. bummer that that is not coming around every three years anymore. But um, yeah, we'll we'll cry about that later. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but just as a as a plug here uh, for those of you going to Shape America in twenty twenty two. There is traditionally like the day before a peat heat um, kind of smaller one day conference that they are organizing. So um, a public service announcement to start. So yeah, looking forward to that. <laughs> so let me ask you this before this COVID-19 pandemic hit and like really shook up this online learning world that we are now embedded in. Uh, what was the status of online PE in, in the U.S.? Yeah, it's a great question, and, and I've asked, I've been asked that a couple times uh, over the last year, year plus now. But um, you know, online physical education pre-COVID, and and I just want to kind of note that online PE pre-COVID and what was experienced during the pandemic are like they're, they're completely different things, right? Apples and oranges. Uh, when we look at you know online programs that were designed as online programs for online students taught by online teachers, right? People who chose that mode of education versus what was experienced during the pandemic, which was, you know, everybody, right? mm -hmm. uh, which was just absolutely nuts in terms of just the volume of students that online education or some variation of online education or distance learning was serving. Um, but we're certainly seeing, I think, another evolution of online learning as we enter into this new school year. Um, and the ways that school districts are approaching online physical education or just online education in general. But I just want to kind of take, take a step back and say just online education in general for all subject areas has shown tremendous growth since the early 2000s, even the, the 90s, you know, kind of the advent of the Internet mm -hmm. um, and the growth of just, you know, digital learning. Uh, you know, we've seen a lot of growth in, in online education in general. Um, I know you've seen at the university level, um, just as I have too, right, the growth of online programs. Yeah. Um, but measuring enrollment in online education is, is complicated um, due to just the many ways that K-12 students enroll in online courses. And we know that pre-COVID, there were over a million K-12 students who were enrolled as full-time online students, but they made up only up no more than 4% of any state's K-12 student population. So it was 
So full-time online students was a, still a relatively you know, small percentage um, overall. Right, and these are, um, these are students that never come on campus, right? Correct, just, yeah. They're in front of yes. a computer, they get everything on online. Yeah, and, and these could be potentially homeschool students, they could be students uh, with uh, injuries that maybe prevent them from coming to campus. It could be by choice, mm -hmm. uh, because every state has different policies when it comes to online education. Um, but the number of one million is very deceiving because it's only it only really accounts for the full-time online students and again we don't necessarily know what subject areas they're taking we assume the full-time students are taking the full breadth including physical education but i don't know that we can make that assumption right. just off the cuff um and and you know looking at the estimates of who are taking online courses part-time um, the, the estimates out there are, are wide ranging, but if, if just taking an educated guess pre-COVID, I would say that it'd probably be in the tens of millions mm -hmm. of K-12 students were enrolled part-time or taking one-off courses or something like that pre-COVID. Right. So there, there was a series of reports done, or there is a series of reports done um, by what was the Evergreen Research Group and now is the, uh, the Digital Learning Collaborative, and they review K-12 online blended and digital learning, and they do a state-by-state -state snapshot, much like the Shape, it, Shape of the Nation report that Shape America puts out uh, regarding PE policies. And in these reports, they acknowledge the difficulty of measuring part-time K-12 students just due to the, all the ways that schools offer online learning and the ways that students enroll in these courses, including you know, school and district level courses to enrollment through private companies, um, that offer online learning experiences for K-12 students, um, and even courses that K-12 students take at colleges and universities for their graduation credit. So right. just trying to count the number of people that do this is extremely complicated. Um, and so to say that the online learning world is complicated is a little bit of an understatement. Um, and, and just to get an accurate count would be impossible. Right. And then to add to this complication, we have um, states such as Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Michigan, and Virginia that have state laws that say that in order to graduate high school, uh, students have to take a online course. Um, and then we have virtual school days, uh, which is a relatively new phenomenon, mainly in the Midwest um, and East Coast. Um, they were really, virtual school days were around uh, providing schools some flexibility either around scheduling, um, potentially maybe budget related. Uh, so where students maybe had a specific day every week, say virtual learning day Friday, right? Where everybody was learning from home or they were using it um, as makeup days when inclement weather was an issue. And, and instead of just canceling the school day, they were able to use these virtual school days, so they they weren't having to make up those days later. Yeah. And and that's um, been that's been a conversation here. What during snow days that mm -hmm. those no longer exist. Like they're just going to do this online virtual day. I and I've heard that, and I have heard of school districts going down to four days a week, um, mm -hmm. which I guess you know is very controversial, but. This makes sense if you think about all of the school buses, all of the transport, yeah. all of the school meals, and all of those things that need to happen 
to run a school on a fifth day in a place yeah. that's really tight on money, it makes sense. Obviously, then there's the access part, right? So like who's, who's not getting free and reduced lunch at school? on those days, how do you transport that food to, to people? So I, I haven't actually heard about this virtual learning day Friday before, like having a full day virtually at school districts. So that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's I, I think it'll be interesting to learn more about it. And I really don't know a ton about virtual school days. Um, I, I think it's, it opens a whole nother, a whole, it's a whole nother conversation, right? In terms of how are we preparing teachers, right? Mm -hmm. You know, for, for you and I talking about the yeah. teacher preparation side of the house, right? It, it, what does it mean for us you know, if that becomes more of a nationwide movement? Um, you know, how are we <laughs> as teacher educators and or how is the induction process uh, for new teachers as they enter the workforce? How are we uh, preparing to, you know, teachers with these skills that they're going to need um, to potentially be teaching online? Right. Um, but I, you know, I think another outcome is just you know what's going to be interesting to see, and maybe these these upcoming digital learning collaborative snapshots is how the pandemic may have impacted some of these state policies regarding online learning, because I, I know for, for some people I've talked to, and we see news stories and things like that, you know, the pandemic has left kind of a sour taste in people's mouths regarding online learning. Um, and we're seeing news articles around, you know, the gap in, in equity and we're seeing uh, learning gaps. And, and But at the same time, for some students and some parents, they've learned that online learning has the benefit, right? The yeah. flexibility that online learning provides to being able to right, work from home for the last, you know, 18 months, uh, right? It's a weird thing kind of being back in my office. but. Yeah. Um, certainly, there's a flexibility that I think a lot of people you know, learn to appreciate. Uh, but again, it's not for everybody, right? And I'll, I'll kind of front load this. Online learning is absolutely not designed for everybody. It was never meant to be for everybody. Uh, so we do kind of have to acknowledge that. Yeah. So again, I guess back to your question about what was the status of PE, right? Because I kind of went on this long tangent, tangent around just online learning in general. But what was the status of online PE you know, pre-COVID? Uh, you know, we, we didn't really know much about enrollment in specific subject areas in the online world until fairly recently uh, in one of those snapshot um, uh, digital learning collaborative um, uh, documents. Um, but what we do know is that it has grown, uh, just like in online education in general. Uh, in those snapshots, they, they started doing some subject area specific enrollment uh, about three years ago, four years ago, now, um, so in, in the academic year 2016-17, uh, approximately eight percent of the online course completions, online online course completions was in the health and fitness area, uh, which was up from 3.5 percent just two academic years earlier. Mm -hmm. So certainly it is growing, um, but part of that is just maybe part of that is just capturing more data. Um, so we don't necessarily know what but the other part is it captures health and physical education and i think this also speaks to what are or what were online physical education courses pre-covid and they were largely fitness based and when you look at the course titles health and fitness really does fit the bill as opposed to physical education right uh, because i'm aware of very few online 
pre-COVID PE courses that were focused on more than just fitness. Right. Absolutely. So what, how many states allow online PE? Do you know that number? And is that number going up? So, yeah. So when we look at the last Shape of the Nation report, they identified 31 states that had policies allowing required physical education credits to be earned online. And that number certainly has grown since the first time the Shape of the Nation report mentioned online physical education in 2006. But at the same time, I'm also going to say that just because the state doesn't have a policy, it doesn't mean that online PE does not exist in that state. My first study as a master's student in 2007, 2008, found that there were online PE programs in states that didn't have policies related to online PE. So it was certainly ha- you know, happening outside of, of where there are policy. So I, I think it's safe to say that online learning pre-COVID existed in all 50 states. But what we can't say as definitively is if online physical education existed as an option in all 50 states, though I would I would err on the side of probably saying it, it probably did. Okay. I think there's a pretty good chance that in some way, shape, or form, online PE uh, existed in some way, you know, in uh, pre-COVID times. Yeah. So, and I know you, you talked a little bit about your research here, our master's students in our online master's learning program. Read your article mm-hmm. uh, with Craig Bushner uh, about online PE. Um, so as a, as a person who, I mean, there, there aren't a ton of people, or let's say two years ago, there weren't a ton of people doing research on online PE, and you are one of those scholars in this area. So can you talk to me about what the research on, on this topic is, on online PE in K-12 settings is like? Yeah, so it, it, you're right. It's a small research community pre-COVID. Um, and, and I hesitate to say, you know, the research that's being done now around the COVID experience is directly, it's, it's online PE, kind of, yeah, right? It's online PE during um, a pandemic. During With a pandemic. Nobody that's been trained to teach online, they were just told right. March 13th, it wasn't a choice. In 2020, <laughs> hey, you're now an online educator, and so figure it out. Right, exactly, right. Thrown in the deep end of the pool and expected to swim, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, certainly I think we have to put an asterisk next to, you know, what can we truly learn about the, you know, sure, we can learn something, but we always are going to have that asterisk next to the fact that this was done during a pandemic and it wasn't a choice. But yeah, it's a small research community. Um, you know, the funny thing is we're writing this article, the four of us, and we just found ourselves citing our own studies time after time after time. And, it, it, you know, there's a couple other folks, but um, there was a lot of self-citation. But, mm-hmm. you know, but that was the, you know, the reason for that is there really hasn't been much done um, beyond what we've done, right. um, little pieces here and there, but, you know, and, and again, that kind of was the, the conversation of, we need to move this line, this research line forward into answering maybe some of the more, you know, pressing questions around how we, we can, um, you know, get this into a more mature research line and actually guide practice, right. And, and guide policy and actually you know, do more than just, again, just find out what's happening. But, you know, as I alluded to earlier, it's complicated doing research in this area. It, it, I'm not going to lie, it's frustrating. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can be do, it can be very hard to do research um, just because of access issues, right? Just getting a foot in the door 
to um, talk with with uh, people who work in this area. Right. Um, for example, a lot of, of um, places use private online learning companies that sell their course shells to districts, uh, which anecdotally, I'm going to say when I talk to teachers who teach online and, and use these for-profit course shells, they don't have very many nice things to say about it. Um, yeah. But so I will say that I, I haven't had any success engaging with these private companies to do research. They have no motivation or no reason to let researchers in. So certainly access is an issue. Right, because they will probably um, showcase that they are not doing things really well. But I guess that's that's the problem right. is we talk about outsourcing. There's uh, Lee Sperka does research on this. There's a couple of people in, in New Zealand and Australia that do research on the outsourcing of this. And you think about private online companies that are just saying, hey, this is just a plug and play. Just pay us this. How much are we selling ourselves out of a job in K-12 settings? When somebody gives you all of the curriculum, you just plug and play and go through. You have no, you have very minimal control of what's going on. I think that's a, it's a very slippery slope there. It's, it's scary, right? Yeah. It's... Um... It, it speaks to the power of advocacy as well at the local level, right? Because that's where the decisions for those types of things are made. And, and it takes just even awareness that it's happening. I'm not even sure that educators in where even in districts where it is happening even know what's happening. Mm -hmm. So uh, certainly I think there's an awareness issue. But yeah, I mean, the, the advocacy of 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 developing these courses yourselves or or having some level of control, right? Because you just identified it is if it's a plug and play and you don't have, and that's the criticism that I've heard anecdotally is I, I literally am an online manager. I'm not a teacher anymore. There's not a lot of room for adaptation. There's not a lot of room for extending learning activities or just even the way that I give feedback, right? It's, it's very much plug and play. So, you know, from the advocacy side, we definitely need, potentially resources out there for educators to be able to have those conversations with their school districts and their schools or at whatever level it's happening to say, you know, here's what we would like to see. And, you know, is there going to be some level of review? Can we provide feedback? You know, what is it? What is the process of, um, around adopting these online programs? Um, so certainly that's an area that, that needs support. Um, but even even with public publicly funded state online schools or, or public schools, access has been tough because, again, it's just kind of, uh, you know, what are you going to do for me? Right. Are you going to spin this in a positive light? You know, and as an objective researcher, you, you can't make those promises ahead of time. Mm -hmm. um, but I will say that the best best success that, that those of us that have done research in this area has, has been either through personal connection, just connections at conferences. Um, I've met several physical education coordinators, you know, who, who for large school districts who have online programs, and that's proven to be, um, uh, you know, just professionally having those, just even having the conversation of what this is, has been um, beneficial. Um, but at the same time, even with all the complexities of online learning and the barriers that we've run into, it, it's been an extremely fascinating area to do scholarship you know now I've, now it's been you know what almost you know 14 years for me that i started started this process um 
but you know the rapid growth and just the lack of scholarship to guide best practices again it's just kind of driven for me at least this fascination with it mm-hmm. uh, but i'm also going to say that, that the lack of research is what got me hooked onto research as a master's student and led me into a career in academia i never thought that i'd be here right as as a as a professor you know, teaching at a university, that was that was never in the career path for me, right? But it was the research that actually got me hooked into it. Um, but on a professional level, you know, this 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 research has always been good conversation at conferences when I present this topic. Um, you know, it's always like I said, it, you know, it print, you know, the, in, inevitably one of the conversations is, do you you support this or you know people assume that oh because you're presenting on this you're pro online physical education well uh, what i'll say is i'm pro quality physical education that's mm-hmm. it happens to be online then yeah i mean i would rather I, my i have a kid just started kindergarten i would rather him enroll in a quality online physical education course than a bad face-to-face physical education course you know if he's going to get quality learning outcomes that's what i want for him right right um, but lastly, you know, just kind of on this topic, I'm just going to say that, you know, again, I just, you know, online physical education, the research related to it just needs to evolve into more than just what's just happening or the, even the challenges and benefits. We kind of know that. And it's not just in the online physical education literature, it's, you know, other subject areas as well. Um, but we need to, we need research that informs practice and raises the bar for the research done in this area. And, which is again one of the reasons why we wrote this article, and, and in the hopes that, that that we're guiding the research to try to answer some of these more meaningful questions related to online physical education. Yeah, and I've I've definitely gone back and forth with this. I you know as soon as I the first time I learned about online PE, I was a hundred percent against it without learning anything about it, and I was like, no, it can't be possibly like it can't possibly be good. And then I saw one of my um, undergraduate students who got a teaching teaching gig right out of his teaching credential and he showed me what he was teaching on online and it's way more in depth cognitively than anything that I've seen done in not anything but most high school PE courses did not go that much into depth and so I think that there are benefits for sure in doing that and I think you know, it, yeah, it's, the, it's a complicated to say I'm pro this because it's like, well, I'm not pro bad plug and plays, yeah. you know, in, in, in online PE, but if it's done better, if it's done for a student who would, would not be physically active and would not do anything, would not engage in person, if they can engage a hundred percent online, then, I mean, there's a, there's an argument to be made there. Yeah, I think, I mean, that, to me, that I think that's got to be one of the, the questions we dig deeper into. It's not really addressed in this article, but to me, it's it's a fascinating question is why are students choosing to take this course online? Mm-hmm. And, and I think there are potential application to the face-to-face environment, right? Is it because of bullying? Is it because of curricular choices, right? What What is it? What's driving potentially students towards this online mode versus taking it face to face? And and then what are the implications for the profession about that? So, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. It's, it's kind of a fascinating thing, but you're right. You're at that knee jerk reaction of online. Nope. Yeah, <laughs> right. I'm already against it. it. I don't want it. It can't possibly good. Right. Because it doesn't 
it's an oxymoron in our profession, right? Mm -hmm. It's what we do is physical. How, <laughs> how in the world can we do this online? And, yeah. and certainly I think that barrier is just that cognitive barrier for ourselves, right? As we're trying to figure out what is online physical education, we're trying to rationalize it, right? What is it? And we're trying to draw a picture in our head of what does this actually look like? Yeah. So we've talked about where we've been and what this kind of may have looked like during the pandemic, but where do you see this movement of online PE going post pandemic? Like, are there any like predictions that you're willing to put on the record? <laughs> Man, I, if I had a crystal ball, you know, I, I really wish I knew kind of where we were heading. Um, yeah, I think this post, you know, when we, as I don't know if we're, we're not post COVID, but you know, as we enter into post COVID, it, it, it's, it's going to be fascinating to see, you know, is there going to be this repulsion of online learning because of what, you know, happened during the pandemic for a lot of students, just the, the lack of, you know, learning and, and certainly there were a lot of bad things happening out there, but certainly there were, there was some good stuff happening out there. But um, I do think that we're seeing schools investing in online learning because of the pandemic, right? There was a lot of monies thrown um, from the federal government, state governments into digital technologies and actually you know, trying to overcome the access issue um, and the access barriers. Um, but, you know, we really don't know what's happening. But from what I'm seeing in the local level, you know, um, my, my, my son's school district has their own virtual school students, um, a virtual school for students who are opting out of face-to-face of -face schooling due to the pandemic. And, and kind of interesting is one of my newly graduated teacher candidates interviewed for that hybrid face-to-face -face and online PE teaching position to serve that online school. So it wasn't a full-time online PE teaching position, at least not in that school district. And actually last night I completed a reference check for, for another recent graduate for a fully online PE position in the uh, kind of central part of California. And, so, and honestly, like I, yeah. I think if we look at this, we have to understand that there are teachers who would prefer to teach online. Like they would prefer to hike in Zion National Park during the day and check their like email and live like in different parts of the state and travel and be a nomad or they just don't like driving an hour and a half one way to work but they can get yep. the same salary teaching online and they prefer that. And there are students who are going to want to do this even out of the pandemic. I know that some school districts are banning it. They're like, they are not allowed to do online academies and other school districts are looking at it and going, well, if there's teachers who want to teach online and there's students who want to learn online, let's, let's do it. So yeah. I, I think, I think that there's going to be a generation of students, maybe they're younger, maybe they're older, maybe they saw something during the pandemic that they're like, hey, I don't mind working from home. Like, I'm good at this. I'm good at educating online. And they might they might enjoy it more. Yeah, I, you know, that's kind of the interesting part is right, what's going to happen post pandemic. I think at least in the short term, we're going to see an increase in online course offerings. Um, in the long term, you know, the, we really, we don't know, but we also know like he just mentioned it, right? Some schools and districts have policies against online learning, right? And we're seeing that kind of play out in, 
in different states across the country where um, online education has kind of come into the crosshairs of politicians and it's become a political issue. Um, and we're seeing some states pass anti-online education policies. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, online PE is, is here to stay um, and it will likely con continue to grow. Um, but, you know, again, uh, some form of distance learning has been around for well over 100 years, right? Think about courses by mail, DHS courses, phone courses, to, to now what are internet-based courses. So there's always going to be a need of some form of distance learning. And online physical education, I think, is just, or it, you know, it's an embedded part of that experience. So whether it grows or goes back to that, you know, no more than 4% of any state's, um, you know, K-12 population, or if it becomes 10%, you know, I, I you know, I, I can't imagine it's ever going to be the plurality. I don't think it's ever going to be the predominant form of education. Um, but yeah, because of that, as you identified, right, that benefit of teaching from home or learning from home or, you know, being able to kind of work non-traditional hours, right, go hiking in the morning and, and manage the online course stuff later or whatever, right, just that flexibility. I think a lot of teachers like, you know what, I actually kind of like this. I didn't think I would, but you know what, you know, it's not that bad. Yeah. And I mean, and things could shift dra dramatically. Like we, we talked probably 10 years ago when we saw Harvard come out with these MOOCs, these massive online open classes, and you could take a Harvard class and learn all of this stuff for free or whatever the, you know, maybe there's a small cost associated with it. But you look at that, nobody talks about MOOCs very much anymore because yeah. we started realizing that you can't do a self-paced course as effectively as somebody who's giving you feedback and you're not just a person in, in a like in a huge room listening to a lecture and and that type of education works for some people but there's less motivation there so that has kind of faded away but it works in certain areas so i think i think you're right i think it's going to be really interesting you know to see what kind of fades away and what what comes up and i and i hope it's the quality that comes up to the top so, but so you, in the, in the paper, you frame it with the essential components of PE from Shape America. Um, so they, they talk about four pillars. One is policy and environment. The other is curriculum and you have appropriate instruction and then student assessment. So when we're looking at future research in online PE, what are some of the topics we need to look at in the first pillar of policy and environment? Yeah, so when you look at this pillar, it covers policies that are related to things like instructional minutes, uh, policies around inclusion, waivers, substitutions, exemption, class size, using this activity as punishment, and, and having a licensed teacher uh, to teach the subject area. And when we look at the scholarship, thankfully, we know that online PE is being taught by licensed educators. I think that was a big sigh of relief when we started doing this research, like, thank goodness, right? Mm -hmm. You know, that it's being taught by licensed physical education. And I think actually one of the interesting things is that we found out that they were experienced physical educators. These were people that tended to have master's degrees that were, they had been teaching for, you know, more than 20 years or more than 15 years, right? These were established educators for the most part who were choosing this mode. 
Um, I remember talking to one person. She's like, my school district asked me to develop it. And uh, I said, yes, but I'd only, you know, and the reason I started teaching it because I, I owned it, right? It was mine. Right. And it was my baby. I developed it, right? I wanted to do it. Uh, but, you know, future research should always continue, I think, asking that question. Um, if for no other reason, this, then just to ensure that the course is being taught by a competent expert, right? Mm -hmm. Someone who's licensed in that subject area. I think we always need to ask that question. Um, so from a uh, policy standpoint, you know, we, we need to absolutely make sure that there's always policies that licensed educators, you know, um, are being, are doing the teaching. Um, when we look at instructional minutes, um, we felt it was important that future research distinguish between learning time in the different domains, um, or at least try to examine that, right? How is learning being spent um, within the different domains of learning within physical education, and how the instruction accomplishes the state required content standards, essentially meshing, you know, how does this course meet the state required content? Right. And, and we really don't have in the existing literature, we don't have a clear snapshot of that, of what, but, you know, earlier we we're talking about how existing courses are largely fitness based. And, and just on the surface, I, I don't know how a fitness based course, you might be marketed as meeting all the content standards, but again, just on the surface, it can't be accurate because you know that PE is way more than just fitness. So really examining how courses, are, are they wiggling through loopholes? You know, what is it that we need to know about these courses and how they mesh with the content standards? Um, and, and what can we do from a policy perspective to ensure that these online courses are not just kind of a free for all to, to just do fitness or, you know, it needs to be a well, you know, part of the well-rounded education and make sure that we're addressing, you know, the content that is much greater than fitness. Um, we also suggest uh, about guide, you know, doing research that guides the legislative and, and school district policies by examining what's happening within online programs, but also providing solutions for what should be happening. For example, ensuring students um, success with on online education, right? I think what we saw during the pandemic is just throwing people online courses didn't amount to success. And there's a lot of reasons why students weren't successful during the pandemic. But, you know, thinking about some of the things we do know from the research and just making sure that comes into policy, for example, um, how students enroll or how they choose to enroll within those online courses and what su support structures do those online courses have in place? Are there screening mechanisms um, that provide students feedback on whether online learning is a good fit for them? and maybe what resources they may need to be successful, right? If you're not a self-starter, online education is really difficult for you mm -hmm. because a lot of the work is on your own time and you need to not be a procrastinator like yeah. many of us are. Um, and so other policies that, that, that you know, kind of gear towards this meeting the needs of all the learners. And, and I think screening is an important part of it because again, online education is not for everybody, but you don't necessarily know it's for you unless you've had that conversation, right? So whether that's through counselors at the school level, or there's actually some, there's some nice validated tools out there on predicting, predicting success, mm -hmm. um, whether you're gonna be a successful student in online learning, 
Um, so I think those things need to be you know, part of the policies of uh, online programs. And I think research needs to help guide those those decisions that are being made. Um, but yeah, ultimately, there's, there's a lot of questions around policy and environment that will guide uh, online physical education. And, and we hope that, you know, again, when, when folks read this article, they'll be able to to come up with their own questions and, and use what we put together as a, as a launching pad for uh, trying to guide those local and state level policies that relate to online learning. Right. So the second pillar that they talk about is curriculum. Um, and that focuses on what is being taught. Um, can you speak to that, uh, that point? Yeah. So this pillar of curriculum is talking about, you know, whether the curriculum is, is comprehensive, whether it's based on standards, um, and whether the curriculum goes under per, uh, periodic review. And so from the research that has been done, we, we really don't have a ton of information that can answer these overarching themes. But as mentioned before, the curriculum is or has been largely fitness-based and focused on the cognitive domain, um, which for many PE teachers during the pandemic, they can relate to this because that's what we were seeing during the pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. That it was largely fitness-based, it was largely focused on the cognitive domain, especially early on in the pandemic. I, I do think there was a shift mid-pandemic as teachers were were kind of getting their feet under them. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that's, you know, again, everybody was a little bit different in how they approached the curriculum. Yeah. Um, but online physical education research should examine the curriculum and what is being taught, but through the lens of, of finding or, de or developing curricular exemplars or curricular models that addresses all learning outcomes. I think fitness was the path of least resistance. So I, I think we need research that guides those um, the, the what can be taught um, during, you know, in, in the online environment. Um, so, but the, you know, related to this, we, we also need to understand how quality is being ensured in online physical education courses. Um, online PE programs um, should, right now, I think, you know, you can use established online learning evaluation tools such as Quality Matters, which you, you are probably aware of or um, we need to do research on um, our own quality tools, right? How to um, evaluate physical education. Uh, what, what is quality online physical education? What does that look like? Um, and to grow, to grow beyond online, physical, online fitness courses, we need to understand what is being taught in online PE and even if the current content standards are, are even achievable in the online environment. Right. And if they're not, I think that's another conversation of, well, how do we or should 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 the content standards be updated or modified or revised to meet the needs of the online environment if it becomes very prevalent uh, right. within within a state? Well, I mean, even if uh, I, I think teachers who taught physical education during the pandemic would would agree to this, that when you look at some of those content standards to talk about dribbling a basketball or dribbling a soccer ball or throwing and catching or using a long-handed or short-handled uh, implement, like all of those things are very hard to do when the student at home doesn't have the equipment. 
So yeah, right. I, yeah, I bumping, be... bumping a rolled up sweater, right? <laughs> yeah, know? it's like well, it's I saw that bad. one, right? You're like use your <laughs> finger pads. You're like, ah, oh, it's not bouncing back. <laughs> you know, like yeah. And I mean, I guess that's the same conversation of any any state or any country that has standards towards aquatics or swimming but they don't have a swimming pool access and there are there are teachers in california i remember this that they go into a swimming unit and they just teach swimming in the gym or like like well this is how you would swim this is these are all the safety things and you're like we're not going to the pool you're like well we don't have a pool so but we're hitting the standard so i think i think you're right in, in the sense of the quality of what is going to be taught. I think there are certain things that you, I don't know, like it would be very expensive to teach correctly because you'd have to figure out how to get that equipment to every single person. Yeah, so. right. I mean, I know early on in the pandemic, I saw the, the PE packs, right, from I think Gopher, right? They had mm -hmm. those that you could purchase. But again, right, how realistic is that, right? A school, schools don't have money for that. Not, not um, for schools that are saying, hey, we need to go down to uh, four days a week because we don't have money to run the buses five days a week. Right. They're not going out to go for and buying $200 packs for every single student from right. in their school. So, yeah. Yep. So yep. Let's, let's talk about the third pillar, which is appropriate instruction. And appropriate instruction examines how PE is delivered and clearly online PE is delivered differently than in person. And we can also talk about how COVID PE that you talked about has been done very differently in person, hybrid, concurrent, fully online. Um, what, what should we be focusing on going forward in this area? Yeah, I'm absolutely right. Online PE is absolutely delivered differently than face to face. Um, and, and Many of us have, have, many of us have tried to teach parts of our courses, or tried to teach the same content that we had taught face to face. We tried to teach that online, but I don't know about you, but I know I failed miserably at times as I was trying to translate what I had done in the classroom, face to face to online. Um, so you know, certainly there was that struggle, right? Because online education is absolutely differently, and we, and we can't treat them as the same in many ways. Um, so yeah, so this pillar covers how instruction addresses the goals and objectives of PE, um, using various engagement strategies, you know, being active in moderate to vigorous physical activity for at least 50% of the class time, and adapting instruction for students with special needs. And generally, we know that online experiences are, are fairly dichotomous, right? You either loved it or you hated it. And there's not a lot of middle ground mm -hmm. in, in people's experiences, either taking courses or even teaching them. Um, and, and obviously the, their experiences are going to be influenced by the educator, um, which of course researchers, we don't, we don't have control over what educators do at the local level, but research can investigate best practices. Um, and we can look at, like I mentioned earlier, curricular models or just, you know, strategies to, to, to teach the content well, right? What do we know about teaching? And actually I think this is where COVID was, was a huge boom, you know, and, and just advancing what we know and the tools that are out there to be able to do our content online, right? It was, it was huge just having, you know, going from maybe a couple hundred teachers around the country to, you know, <laughs> tens of thousands uh, of teachers now doing online. So 
yeah. COVID advanced what we knew about being able to teach physical education online by by leaps and bounds. So that was that was fascinating from from just my lens of looking at what we knew pre-COVID to kind of what was the experience during COVID and how do we address the content area. Yeah. Um, but we need to address, I think we need to continue to address strategies of, of um, you know, how to efficiently address the psychomotor domain. I, I think beyond fitness, it becomes difficult, right? Um, how, how do we do the rest of what we do beyond fitness and, and some of the cognitive learning stuff? Right. We need to understand the various digital tools that teachers and students use um, to advance learning outcomes. Right. We need to understand, um, you know, how to teach, you know, basic locomotor skills online. To they, if we're talking about kindergarten to six, right, those fundamental movement skills, right, um, right, that the process of giving in the moment feedback, which I know we're going to talk about here in the next pillar when we talk about assessment, but. Right, just just the how to, to deliver this content is is certainly going to be something that future needs future research needs to address. Yeah, um, and, and I mean I even if you look at a teacher teaching a class of you know twenty five kindergartners, watching them all skip at the same time, it's very easy to see the one person, two people, whatever five kids that aren't doing it correctly. You can give that feedback mm-hmm. versus you think about and we'll talk to this in assessment of watching 25 students individual videos that they upload and then writing feedback individually to them. I mean, that's one way to do it. I know that there are probably other ways to do it, but it, the appropriate instruction and the feedback that you're able to give and the way that you can set up a lesson, I, I think it makes it very, very difficult. So. Yeah, well, I mean, just even be able to meet you know, it's in the pillar. It says, you know, the guideline is 50% of the time spent in MBPA. I mean, does that make sense in an online environment right. at all? Um, yeah. Because of the way the online courses are started, right? They are different. Yeah. Um, and it is a lot easier to do that cognitive content online. And as you identify it, it's so much harder to navigate the, the physical component online and be able to provide quality feedback in real time as you have you know 25 50 60 whatever little boxes of students on your screen yeah. uh, but you know pre-covid live sessions really weren't happening in in the online physical education world mm-hmm. that's really a covid thing that happened right yeah, pre-covid right. it was all asynchronous yeah, right yeah. online courses in pe were asynchronous so that experience is covid specific right yeah. and and I, I think an interesting question going to the future is is what did the established right the establishment of online physical education what did they learn about teaching online from the COVID experience and what are they going to be applying to future fully online you know established online physical education courses I think that's a question you know I, I definitely that's on my short list of things I want to do like now, right, of research projects. So do yeah, I'm hear that? Don't don't steal that idea, anybody. <laughs> Let David take that was mine. Yeah. <laughs> so the last pillar is assessment. What do we know about assessment in online PE, and what do we still need to figure out? Yeah, just like all the pillars, right? We need to we need to know more, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the assessment really, you know, the assessment pillar talks about how student assessment or about student assessment and how 
grading is aligned with content standards and grade and, and with the grade level outcomes. And and you know, previous research has found that you know fitness tracking, specifically activity logs, was the most common form of assessment. And I think we also saw that during the pandemic in some of the articles that I've seen, right? Activity logs was just again kind of the path of least resistance. Yeah. It was the easiest thing to do to say, hey everybody just fill up this activity log, I'll give you, you know, hundred points or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, certainly online PE courses need to grow beyond this form of, of assessment um, or at least beyond the traditional activity log that is on your honor, right? Let's use technology to uh, verify, you know, physical activity levels or, you know, let's let's use, let, you know, I like to call it like activity log plus, right? It's not just telling me what you did, but let's have a reflection component to it, a goal setting component to it, maybe some evidence of, of proof that you actually did these things. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly future research needs to develop valid and reliable assessment tools and strategies even, right? Best practices around how to assess these content standards online, um, including the effectiveness of activity logs and activity tracking um, beyond kind of, again, that traditional just on your honor activity log. Again, I think we need to get away from that completely. It's just yeah, it's just not a good form of assessment. Um, you know, interestingly, you, you look at some of the research, we talked to um, online physical educators who use that, and they're like, I honestly have no clue whether students did this or not. I cannot trust this assessment yeah. at all. Yeah. It's like, okay, well, if you can't trust the assessment, then, then why are we giving it, right? What's the point <laughs> of the assessment if you are literally throwing it out? Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, online... Research needs to investigate how teachers use assessment to drive curricular decisions, just like we need to know that in the face-to-face environment, um, and how online PE teachers are using assessments with their students to guide appropriate teaching practices, such as goal setting and choice. Um, but again, we need to know that in the face-to-face environment, and, and how better to prepare students or teachers to do these things. Um, and additionally, we need to know we need research to help us understand the effect- effectiveness of teacher feedback. We were just talking about that and how that feedback is implemented, right? It's really hard, right? Again, you have you know, 50 kids on a screen. They're not even all on one screen. You have to scroll over, right, on Zoom, yeah. right, to see that many students, right? How can you effectively provide feedback? And again, that in-the-moment feedback that they can use now, right? I can watch a video provide feedback, but that moment is past for yeah. that student, yeah. right? When are they actually going to use that feedback? Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's a piece from an assessment standpoint that kind of fascinates me is, is you know, how the feedback loop works uh, within the online environment um, and what are some really good effective strategies um, and even tools that can help us do those things um, in a efficient manner, right, when we have potentially a couple hundred students that we're serving every day. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I mean you, yeah. Think, you think about having those students on that screen and you're scrolling across and you're trying to teach, but you're trying to look at the students at the same time. And <laughs> right. some of the students have their cameras off. And you think about, like for me, when I go into a faculty meeting, you know, there's, oh my God, do I want to keep my camera on right now? Do I not? Like I get distracted yeah. by just like looking at people. <laughs> like I'm not paying attention yeah. to what's happening in the meeting because I'm watching like other people and and seeing who's there. and. You know, I, th- I think that there's so many distractions in that way. And then, you know, you have somebody wanting to talk and they're cutting out. And so somebody will announce, you're like, hey, can you turn your camera off? 
because this person has a low internet speed and maybe this will help and yeah it's a it's a mess but yeah right i didn't even talk about cameras off but yeah that's a whole nother thing right yeah. this is, is but again this this zoom experience that we had during covid pre-covid that didn't exist right in online PE courses so you know is is that a fad that's going to pass um is that something that's going to remain in the future in terms of live you know synchronous online sessions um i, I think that's that's going to be a fascinating part again i think that's where maybe covid experiences maybe our maybe will shift some of the thinking of the you know traditional pre-covid online experiences whether you know and and again what are the implications again for teaching um teaching strategies and teacher education right is is you know if this is a tool that sticks to the future in terms of online physical education then again i think we need to figure out what does that feedback loop look like how what are the pedagogical strategies that teachers can employ to actually manage doing these things because right it's really hard to teach the class and <laughs> watch all of your students yeah. um in their own environments and you have students who are not sharing their camera so yeah, it, it definitely creates an interesting dynamic. Yeah. So I have one final question for you. And we talked about this at the very beginning of the podcast and that this is a little bit complicated. So do you see online PE as the future of physical education or do you feel that it's gonna be some part of physical education in the future? Uh, yes and no. <laughs> um, again, like I said, mentioned earlier, yes and in that some form of online PE will always exist, right? I think you know, distance learning in some way, shape, or form is always going to exist. But uh, again, as I mentioned earlier, no, because I, I do not believe that online physical education will ever be the predominant form of education, um, or just online education in general, I don't think will ever be the predominant form, at least not in our lifetime. Um, I think it's what we saw during the pandemic, you know, distance learning is absolutely not for everybody. Um, you know, beyond the access and equity issues, right? Just from a learning standpoint, it just doesn't mesh well for everybody. Um, I'm sure you experienced it in your classes. I know I did. I mean, there's just students who just dropped off the face of the earth and no, and no matter how much you reached out to them or, or they wanted to be there, they just physically could not stare at a screen or couldn't manage their own time, right? They needed that face-to-face. Uh, but I think it's also important for, for listeners of this podcast and the readers of this manuscript to acknowledge, again, that the educational experience during the pandemic is way different than educational experiences that were designed for online learning from the start, right? From, you know, from start to finish, that the course was designed as an online course. That is a very different process than the pandemic pedagogies that were developed by educators with minimal training and understanding of online education as a whole. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that they didn't learn or that they didn't do good things, but when a course is designed by people who know what they're doing in the online world for students who want to be there, right, it's a very different thing um, than when it's for everybody. Um, I, I think, again, it's gonna be interesting to see how the pandemic pedagogies will inform future online physical education courses. I, I do believe that, you know, the good of the pandemic from an online PE perspective is that, again, it advanced what we know about how to do this by leaps and bounds. 
and we 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 learned this just because of the ingenuity uh, and the creativity of the tens of thousands of physical educators uh, that that are out there, right? And and I thank them all for doing a good job, right? And helping me, right, understand even online physical education and what it is and what it can be. Um, I think to me that was kind of a fascinating part. I thought I knew what online physical education was pre-COVID. Then COVID hit, and we just saw all these examples on Twitter and you know the social media, um, and just you know even you know through all the other digital resources that are out there and all the videos on YouTube and just the, the use of the different technology tools, right? It, it expanded my understanding of what online physical education could be um, post-COVID. So I think that was that was very fascinating from my end. Yeah. Um, and I'm just going to end by saying, you know, this, 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 the research related to online physical education is, is a relatively new field, right? We're talking, you know, at most 20 years old when you look at the earliest online PE-related studies. And it needs to mature and and grow. And my co-authors and I really hope that this manuscript and this podcast um, offer some guidance on the research to and and to take the next steps in guiding this mode of education to ensure that uh, quality education is taking place. Yeah, and I and I think it's at a crossroads of there's plenty of research questions, and you list a lot of them in here. There's plenty of room in the field for people to do good things. And there's also plenty of interest in people learning about this, whether they are thinking about moving one class to online or moving a summer class online so they can teach a summer physical education class or going fully online or figuring out what the heck just happened in the last two years of education and what they can take from that to balance out the rest of their rest of their teaching so um it was it was a great article great read i think it's spot on for this you know whether you're at a university or whether you're at a k-12 school of going into this new academic year and kind of reflecting on where where we've been and kind of thinking about where we can go in online PE. So, David, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I really appreciate the, the information and sharing your work. All right, yeah, no, I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Krista, for having me. Awesome. So for those of you who want to read the full article, uh, there's a link in the notes section. You can just click on the hyperlink. It'll take you to the article. Um, if you have trouble accessing it, you can uh, let us know. Um, and then... Um, that's all we got on uh, on this podcast, and we'll be back next week. Thanks. If you're still listening, you're probably really into health and physical education, so I'm going to use this opportunity to pitch our master's program to you if you don't have your master's degree yet. Um, our 100% online master's degree program we offer at George Mason is affordable. You can do it while teaching, and it's high quality. Um, Mason was listed as one of the top 50 universities under 50 years old in the world. Our education department was ranked in the top 10 nationally for the online master's degree program in curriculum and instruction. The master's degree uh, revolves around your teaching. So you'll use assignments from the classes to immediately apply research and best practices to your classes. You'll be part of a tight-knit cohort of health and physical education professionals 
who are passionate about teaching. You're also going to get an opportunity to interact with students in other content areas. So if you're interested, you can email me, look me up on Twitter, or you can go on the hpewebsite.com under study with us and watch a video that I've made.